Good morning, welcome again. Continue through the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible. If you have one, please turn there, keep it open. Revelation chapter 4 today. We've got some, some big words for you today to learn, so pay attention. Uh, if you're just joining us, we've covered the first three chapters of Revelation. Chapter 1 is uh, the Apostle John having a vision of Jesus himself, while John is uh, exiled to a, a prison colony called Patmos, an island, a Greek island. Uh, he it sees Jesus there, and then Jesus, in the next two chapters, uh, gives him seven messages or seven letters to seven churches in modern-day Turkey. Uh, and now in chapter 4, John begins uh, the a whole chunk of visions that make up most of the book. Uh, and this is the first of that chunk of visions. Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we once again ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things in your word. As we join John in ascending through the open door in heaven, may we with him see your beauty and your glory and so gain strength and courage to live for you here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do any of you remember those crazy magic eye posters from like 20 years ago where you would have this crazy chaotic pattern up on the wall, this jumble that looks like nothing? And I never really could figure out how to do it. 
but apparently if you kind of blur your eyes in the right way or if you kind of focus in the right spot, uh, eventually you can see 3D objects clearly coming into focus out of the midst of the jumble of chaos. In many ways, the book of Revelation is like that. In this book, you have this genre of vivid symbolism. It's a genre called apocalyptic literature. Uh, Revelation is only one example of what was pretty common at the time. Uh, But in this piece of literature, Jesus himself, uh, through this genre of apocalyptic, is giving his sinning and suffering church a new focal point. He's giving his church a clear image of a world that on the surface appears to be completely chaotic. A world that is totally disorienting, even terrifying. We've already heard how these seven churches in first century Asia Minor got messages from Jesus himself where he gave them a new perspective on him but also on themselves. But now in chapter 4, God gives John the first of a new series of visions that he receives while transported by God's spirit into God's heavenly dwelling place. The first vision is a vision of God's heavenly throne room, uh, the command center, if you'd like, of the entire universe, whether we're talking about the seen or the unseen aspects of the universe. Uh, Chapters 4 and 5 go together. We're going to split them up into a couple of different sermons. But both of those chapters together are constantly using the word throne. It's one of uh, the key words that holds all of it together. Today we're going to focus especially on chapter 4, which is meant to convince us not just intellectually, but also emotionally, that God really is a good king who really does rule over this chaotic world. A world so twisted by bestial hatred for God and for his creation and for his beloved people. Now speaking especially of this passage, Revelation chapter 4, one author writes about how encouraging this chapter has been for Christians suffering under totalitarian utopianism in China. Listen to this. The Christians there turn to revelation for hope during times of persecution, above all, during the horrors of the cultural revolution. And then he quotes a Chinese scholar. By means of the motifs of visionary transportation to heaven, visions of God's throne room in heaven, angelic mediators of revelation, symbolic visions of political powers, coming judgment, and new creation... Chinese Christians see the final destiny of this despaired world in the transcendent divine purpose. It's the hope portrayed in the book of Revelation that sustains Chinese Christians to endure to the end. Uh, We are not suffering like our Chinese brothers and sisters are, but this passage is here for us too. It's here to encourage us also to endure to the end. And it does this by leading us to worship God. To worship Him as the holy and wise and beautiful King over His entire creation. The entire vision is a vision of a worship service. It's one taking place right now in heaven. You hear in verse 1 that John sees a door open up into heaven. 
And then he hears Jesus' majestic voice once again sounding to him like a trumpet. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now you can already see, just in that first word of Jesus's, you can already see this strong emphasis on God's sovereignty, God's rule over all things, even the future. Jesus does not say that John will hear about things that might take place. He does not even hear Jesus say that you will hear about things that will take place. Jesus says, I'm going to tell you about things that must take place. We begin with what John sees before the chapter moves on to what John hears. Now, the first thing that he tells us that he sees is a throne that stood in heaven, uh, literally a throne lying in heaven or a throne sitting in heaven. The idea is that it's continually fixed, that the throne is stable there. Now, very interestingly, when the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel sees a similar vision of God's throne during Israel's exile in Babylon, God's throne in Ezekiel's vision has a kind of chariot that it's sitting on top of. Uh, And Ezekiel gives us these bizarre details about the wheels of the chariot and how it moves around. The point there in Ezekiel, because Ezekiel is with Israel in exile in Babylon, the point there, and God says this specifically in Ezekiel, the point is that God is going with his people into exile, that he's going to travel with them. But the point here in Revelation with a stationary throne is that God is calmly and securely ruling over a world, even though it seems like it's spinning totally out of control. The throne is set in heaven. And this throne, John tells us, is not empty. Even though the world and sometimes the church acts like it is. The throne of the universe is occupied. John says that he sees one seated on the throne. When the king is seated... His realm is at peace. Heaven is not just over the earth, but is in many ways, according to the Bible, the staging area for the earth. God's will, God's peace, God's rule flow down from heaven onto and into the earth, particularly in and through the church. And so everything that we hear and see in the book of Revelation is coming from the God who sits on this heavenly throne. But we know that there is a great deal in the book of Revelation that modern people find disturbing and offensive. We think that we are too good for a God of burning wrath. We think that we know better than to believe in hell which the book of Revelation describes as a lake of fiery torment with smoke rising forever and ever. We think we're better than God, that we're more loving, more compassionate, more beautiful. But this opening vision of God's throne room is here to show us who he is. 
why it's not only right, but good for him to rule over his whole creation and to command its endless adoration. Because you see, you and I are not the center of the universe, even though we often act like we are. Neither are the United States or Wall Street or the World Economic Forum or the Ivy League or Silicon Valley. The world has always been and always will be ruled by its creator. The history of the universe is not driven by random chance or meaningless evolution. 150 years ago, Nietzsche both cheered and mourned the way that the modern world had deposed and murdered God. And having now done our best to shove him aside, the modern world now desperately tries to fill the horrifying vacuum with sex and war and politics, all of it papered over with a naive optimism that technology will save us. But when you shove God aside, do you know what really fills the vacuum? Demons. Demons fill the vacuum. There's nowhere in the universe that's spiritually neutral. And yet much of what this chapter is showing us is that even so, God is on the throne. God rules over the chaos, over the evil, over the suffering, even over the devil himself. What kind of God rules over us and rules over this world, rules over its evil? In verse 3, John struggles to describe what he's seeing struggles to describe God's appearance on the throne. He says, he had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, which are gemstones, probably red and green. The point is that God is beautiful. That God is eminently glorious. God's glory in the Bible is often connected to light, to majesty, to splendor. From another angle, the idea and the word has to do with weightiness, with importance, with significance. But in the modern world, of course, we pride ourselves on being cynical about everything, about seeing through everything, about questioning everything. But we have to see here that the universe has a transcendent meaning and purpose and that all of it is centered on the transcendently beautiful and glorious God. John also says that he sees a rainbow emanating from God's throne and that this also appears to be an emerald. Again, the idea of beauty and glory. Uh, but in the book of Genesis, uh, the rainbow becomes the physical sign of God's promise that he will never flood the world again. In Hebrew, the word rainbow is the same as the word bow, like the weapon, bow. And the idea in Genesis is that God is hanging up his weapons of war to remind himself that he is now going to be merciful toward a sinful world, to remind us also that God has committed himself to not waging war like that anymore. 
And so when Noah descends from his boat after the flood and God gives him the rainbow as the sign of his mercy, uh, the structure of the story is very clear that his world after the flood is in many ways a new creation. It's a restarting of the world. And now all of that is intensified in and through Jesus. All of that is brought together once again and intensified in John's vision of God's throne. As you'll see in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus' death is the ultimate expression of God's love and mercy. Jesus bearing God's wrath as our substitute on the cross is the means by which we enter into the ultimate new creation of Jesus' resurrection. Noah's new creation was just an anticipation of it. And so once again, and especially as we start hitting all these visions about God's wrath against human and demonic evil, we need to remember that all of it is coming by and through a glorious and a good and a beautiful God. A God who has so patiently extended his mercy to a sinful and twisted world in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. But now in verse 4, John begins describing not just what he sees at the throne, but what he sees around the throne. In verse 4, you hear that there are 24 thrones around God's central throne, and that each of these thrones is occupied by an elder, or maybe a better translation for us today is an ancient one. Uh, Like Jesus had been in John's earlier vision in chapter 1, and like Jesus had promised to his churches in chapters 2 and 3, these ancient ones are wearing crowns and white robes, which are symbols probably of purity and holiness and status. And because of their participation in this heavenly worship service, the number 24 is probably related to a spot in the Old Testament where King David divides up all of the priestly worship leaders into 24 regiments. Uh, But who are the elders? Who are these 24 beings? Um, Many people think that they are a symbolic representation of all of God's people, uh, God's human people, uh, from both the Old and the New Covenants. Maybe you take the 12 tribes of Israel, add them to the 12 apostles of the New Covenant, and you get 24. That's one idea that's very possible, but I think it's more likely that what we're seeing here are angelic beings, not humans or representations of humans. Uh, These 24 elders are going to later in the book of Revelation speak of the human church in the third person as a they and them, Uh, and then at one point they're going to be offering up the prayers of the church to God uh, there in heaven. And so I think it's probably more likely that these are angels, not humans. One of the things that seems to change between the Old and the New Covenants in the Bible is that God promotes his human servants above his angelic servants. Uh, The angelic servants in the old way of doing things, according to the Bible, had played some kind of supervisory role while Israel and humanity still had their training wheels on. Uh, That might be part of why the angels are described as elders. They're old. They are heading off into a kind of retirement. They're handing over their role and their prominence to the human whippersnappers. If you're a Tolkien nerd like me, you'll recognize that this is a lot like how the elves and the humans relate to each other in Middle Earth. But here in, verse, in Revelation chapter 4, 
these 24 elders pop up in similar forms throughout the Bible as God's counsel of servants and judges. They are administering his rule over the universe. That's the first thing he sees around the throne. But then in verse 5, he looks back at the throne and he notices that lightning and thunder are coming out of it. Uh, God frequently appears in the Bible in the midst of a storm, usually as an expression of his majesty and or of his wrath. And the most important place, of course, where lightning and thunder show up with God is on Mount Sinai, when God gives his law to Israel through Moses. And so the point here is that this beautiful, glorious God ruling through his angelic armies is the God of order and law and truth. That God can and must respond with judgment when his creation rebels against it. It's good news that this is who God is, especially for the oppressed and for the suffering. That there is a standard of goodness and of truth. There's justice in the world. John also sees seven burning torches or lamps before the throne, and he explains that these are a symbol of God's own Holy Spirit, who is fully God with the Father and with the Son. The Bible teaches that it's by and it's in his spirit that God rules over and sustains his entire world, even those parts of it that are still in rebellion against him. They don't realize that they are being sustained and cared for by God's spirit, but they are. The point here is that God's not absent from the world, but that he continues to hover over the world, just like the spirit did at the creation. John also sees a sea of glass. He says it's something like crystal before God's throne. Uh, But in the Bible and in the book of Revelation also, the sea is usually uh, the churning realm of chaos and death. But the point here, the heavenly perspective, is that God so rules over the world that he brings perfect calm. Still as glass even in and through its most terrifying aspects. In his endless goodness, in his matchless beauty, God perfectly governs all things, including evil and death and the devil. What should be chaos and death before God is still, is calm. The last thing that John sees around the throne are four living creatures which had popped up in Ezekiel's vision of God's throne 500 years before this. Although here, John describes them a bit differently. They are utterly powerful, angelic servants whose entire purpose is to adore God forever and ever. John sees them here with a bunch of wings covered with eyes all over their bodies, uh, probably a symbol that God is watching his creation, that he is just like Hagar had called him, The God who sees. No evil, no suffering, no pain escapes his burning gaze as he sends his spiritual servants throughout the universe to stand as his witnesses and to do his will. One of these four is like a lion, one's like an ox, another like a man, another like an eagle. Probably the idea here is that each of these are the ruler of their realm of creation. So you have the lion ruling the wildlife, the ox ruling domestic animals, uh, the man ruling humanity, the eagle ruling the heavens. Together, they represent all of God's creation. And their endless worship 
shows that his whole creation exists to focus on him with trembling and joyful adoration. And that's just what John shows us next as he shifts from what he sees to what he hears. In verse 8, he tells us that day and night, these four mighty living creatures never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The living creatures praise God for who he is in himself, even without reference to whatever he does in and for his creation. Because you see, even before he made the world, even before he made angels, even before he created time, God had always been infinitely beautiful and good. How often do we as a church, how often do we as individuals praise God, think about God for who he is in himself, even before we get to praising him and making requests to him with reference to ourselves and our world. We should think of God in terms of ourselves and the world. We can't not do that. We should ask God to do things for us and for our world. He commands us to do that. He wants us to do that. But how often do we consider who God is in himself? You see here God being praised in himself for his holiness, his otherness, his specialness, his uniqueness, his separation from his creation. Three times he's called holy, which may be an allusion to his triunity, triply holy as father and as son and as spirit. Now, with this description of him who was and who is and who is to come, we're also seeing him being praised in himself for his eternity. That he has always been what he always will be. That God never develops, never grows, that God cannot learn anything. From another angle, God's being praised, here's one of these big words, for his aseity. It's a theological term. Uh, literally, in Latin, it means the from-selfness of God. Uh, that God is self-existent. That He is not dependent on anything or anyone. That He draws life from Himself for Himself. That He is, in many ways, life itself. He is the basis for all existence of all things. We should be praising God. We should be considering God, thinking of God, learning about God in terms of his being. In theology, we call this his ontology. John goes on in verse 10 to tell us that these 24 elders prostrate themselves. They lie down before him and they throw their crowns before his throne as an act of deference and reverence. Now, you can think of all kinds of ways and places that people do this kind of thing today for royalty for athletes and for pop stars. But God is infinitely more praiseworthy than any of them. You see here that God is praised not only for he, who he is in himself, but also for how and what he does in relationship to his creation. This is where we usually default to when we think about God. Uh, we call this, in theology, we call this God's economy as opposed to his ontology. Ontology is he in himself, what he's always been, Economy is his works, what he does for the world and in the world and through the world. 
And so if the four creatures had been focusing on God as holy, that was the focus of their song, the 24 ancient ones now focus on God as worthy. They say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Now it's interesting because this title, our Lord and our God, was a widely used propaganda term in the first century to refer to the Roman emperor. And so this is probably a dig at the emperor's arrogant pretensions as the center of the world. It would be something like if today we very uh, bombastically and provocatively started calling God or Jesus our president or our commander-in-chief, or we called him the Supreme Court Justice of the real Supreme Court. God is worthy of praise because he created all things, and by his will they existed and were created. And so you see here that the whole universe, represented by these angels and by these four creatures that are kind of standing for all of God's creation on earth, uh, owe not only the beginning of our existence to him, that he created us, but also our continued existence, that we continue to exist and live because he wants us to at every moment. We call this God's providence. God does not just create us and walk away and say, now do your own thing, I'll leave you alone. Nothing happens apart from God's will and sustenance, whether we admit it or not. This is what makes it so awful to ignore God, to avoid God, to defy God. Everything we have is a gift from Him. It's generosity, it's kindness all the time. He's always giving to us. And this is why God has every right to pour out His anger on sinful creatures. Creatures who remain entirely responsible for their evil choices, even as very mysteriously they are under His perfect and wise rule. Much of the book of Revelation is describing and defending the justice of God's anger against a world that is bent on rejecting him and harming his creation. This initial vision in chapter 4 is meant to refocus our eyes, to give us a fresh perspective. It's telling us this, this is the God who rules over such a chaotic and deathly world. The rule of political and spiritual beasts over this world is in the end only a nominal rule. The ultimate ruler, the one who created all things, remains seated on his throne. He's not going anywhere. He's perfect there in his beauty and in his goodness. Now for some of us today, this refocused vision of God on his throne should correct us. How easily we treat God as though he were so small and so wimpy and so pathetic. How quickly we elevate ourselves and our idols above him. But for others of us today, this refocused vision should comfort us because we see here that he sees and he knows the darkness of this world. He sees and knows all of it, but even more than that, 
He's ruling over it. And as chapter 5 is going to focus on especially, he's doing something about it. So take comfort as you refocus on God's holiness and on his beauty. And as we saw with the rainbow emanating from his throne, take comfort too in his mercy. His mercy toward his people and the Lord Jesus. He lives and he reigns to bring glory to himself. And the best way he does that is by rescuing a needy and helpless people. Let's pray. Father, reveal yourself to us again in all of your beauty. The beauty that is yours in your holiness and the beauty that is yours in your mercy towards a sinful world. Forgive us for the ways we've demoted you, for the ways we've shrunk you, the ways that we've lived as if we were on the throne. Help us to find the joy of the angels in living before you on your throne, recognizing your rightful place there. Comfort us, Lord, especially those of us who are grieving the evil and the darkness of this world and all the suffering that it brings. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.